0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at New Balance.
1: I always took issue with the term athleisure. Sure, it covers the workout and the chill-out part, but doesn't account for all the running around the average woman does in between those two things, which feels far from leisurely. The people at New Balance get it and have created the fresh foam crew sneakers to cover all those bases— The breathable knit body slips on and off easily, the sole cushioning is incredibly comfortable, and they look great, whether I'm in sweats or jeans and a blazer. You can get your pair at newbalance.com. Use code GOOP at checkout to receive free shipping through September 30th.
0: Hi, guys. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is Peter Krohn. Peter has been called a mind architect, which is a pretty good description of what he does. Peter works with clients to reveal the limiting subconscious narratives that control what they do, think, and feel. And ultimately, he helps people overcome these self-sabotaging boundaries to reach their highest potential.
2: We're powerful beyond measure, but if you use language that is demeaning or in some way defacing, for me our soul is like, it's, it's unbound, it's, it's limitless. But we will use words to limit ourselves.
0: Our chief content officer, Elise Lunen, had a session with Peter that really shifted her perspective. And today they sat down to talk about how we can redesign the subconscious mind that drives and sometimes limits us.
2: Perfectionism, again, is built on the foundation of inadequacy, right, which is a lie. Control is a byproduct of fear. I only need to try and control things if I'm scared. But if I recognize my fear is, again, based on a construct that is itself a lie and let go of that, then why do I need to control anything? Now I'm in harmony with what is. I am where I am. I'm not where I'm not. And I'm okay with that.
0: After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and Peter Krohn.
1: What was the moment for you when you realized that you had been holding yourself back?
2: (laughs) On my way here when I (laughs) hit traffic and I was going to be an hour late. Gosh, there's been so many sort of pivotal moments in my life that I'm grateful for, albeit at the time were pretty painful. I think my biggest catalyst for awakening was through relationship, which I I find to be the greatest access for people. Um, Dating a woman that I considered to be the love of my life back in my naive years, and um, she did the greatest gift of leaving me, Um, and that revealed my very deep narrative of loss. Uh, Both my parents died before I was 18 years old, and so there was obviously a real trigger around anything of value to me leaving my life. And it was through that process that I recognized how much of my relationship had been founded on that fear, meaning I was the perfect boyfriend. I was giving flowers for no reason. I was super conscientious and making sure that everything was taken care of for her. But what I realized in hindsight was that much of that behavior, albeit I consider myself to be an incredibly loving, caring guy, was it had a subtext of fear, meaning I didn't want her to leave me. So that was that was really the pivotal moment, and that's actually when I started my company, Be Alive. So um, that was that was the biggest moment for me in terms of uh, seeing an entirely new world.
1: How did you get there? Did you were you leaning on a therapist? Were you, did you figure this all out? Like, there's something about your method, having worked with you, that feels like an amalgamation of many different philosophies but that it also feels sort of your own so what were the tools like how did you get how did you recover
2: uh, it's a great question and I guess it is to some degree a bit of a hybrid of many philosophies out there I mean I consider myself an avid reader so I've studied all of the eastern philosophies I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner so there's a huge component within Ayurveda that looks at the mind I was, as desperate men do, doing desperate things and calling every friend I had under the sun at that moment. So there was a lot of counsel that was just coming from people who genuinely cared about me. But to be honest, I think it's just part of my makeup, which is it's just intuition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's to the point where you said it feels like it's my own. Because I was sitting in my rent control apartment with every possession I had in this two, three hundred square foot room. And I was sitting at my desk and I'll never forget that three words hit me. Uh, and they were, I don't know. And what that, why that was so profound is because my mind had been in this incessant circle, constantly trying to figure out the answer to all of these questions, which is, will she come back? Will I ever meet anyone again? Will I ever have such fantastic sex again? Will I ever blah, blah, blah? Is she with someone? What? All of these questions that actually didn't have any any answer. So the, this, the the accurate response to all of them was, I don't know. And for the first time in my life, I was completely at peace with that. And that's when I realized that life itself is uncertainty. And we have a mechanism that is designed to try and predict because it wants to help us survive that is incessantly asking these questions that invariably don't have an answer, which is what creates stress for people. So at that moment, I literally felt like A completely different human being Mm -hmm. and I had a dinner appointment like within about well the the story actually gets a little more profound but I had dinner that evening and I can remember walking it was only five blocks from my house and I I didn't feel like I touched the ground Mm. but the profound part was um, I hadn't spoken to this girl for about five or six weeks and it'd been about eight to nine weeks since uh, she'd left but within fifteen minutes of me having that realization, she called me crying, saying how much she missed me. I was like, "Damn it! Where was that when I really needed you?" Um, so it was for me that was like very, that was profound, in as much as it spoke to entanglement theory, quantum physics, the interconnectedness of everything, because I was suddenly now available. I wasn't trying not to lose her, you mm-hmm. know. So yeah, so it was a repre- uh, that that was very pivotal in my own uh, journey.
1: That's interesting. And, and maybe you can help help me unpack this a bit. But this idea, too, of I don't know, or in, disentangling yourself from the relationship, because I feel like that's the, the problem is always rests in your relationship to the object. And I think we always try to place, we try to place it on the, the person or the thing, or they're doing this to me, or they left. Mm-hmm. And really, it's like, it's lives with yourself. It's actually within your own control, because it's the relationship. It's not person
2: yeah I mean that's what I would consider like most humans are at the effect of life mm-hmm. right like we're under the impression that we feel a certain way good or bad because of something mm-hmm. and it's super super seductive and it's very convincing that you know someone will say well I feel bad because this happened or I feel good because this happened And and I'm not saying that external environment doesn't have its impact but ultimately it's all through the process of interpretation right so ultimately The experience I'm having is because of the one I'm generating for myself. So that to me is super powerful if you really understand that because ultimately then we become sort of the masters of our own experience. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I bring to all my clients now is to recognize that, yes, circumstances occur in life, But I would assert that they're actually the excuse to elicit a response to see where you're not free. Mm -hmm. Meaning you will continue to run into events in your life until such time that you've reconciled whatever limitation it is that you have in your subconscious mind, right? Mm -hmm. The woman that keeps attracting a man... Who um, perhaps is abusive, maybe not even physically, but you know, emotionally, or certainly a guy that just doesn't actually honor and revere her. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is that revealing? Well, in my my diagnosis, it would be that she's not loving and honoring and revering herself. Right mm-hmm. until she gets that message, she's not going to attract circumstances to reflect that. Mm-hmm.
1: That's why I think for so many, I don't I'm, as my friends or other women it feels like relationships tend to be course corrections until you ultimately end in something that's more sustainable. But you, at least my experience, was sort of going back and forth between extremes until I had calibrated Mm -hmm. the appropriate relationship, which didn't even look like what I had expected it would, but it was in some ways like a, a mounting of lessons. One thing to go back to, that you said, which I thought was really interesting, is the way that we create our reality and something that in my conversations with you, that you have been hard on me for, which I appreciate, <laughs> is the specificity of language and the yeah. power of language and the way that we tend to make everything about us or seem like it's under our control. And so there were a couple of things that I had said to you that you corrected me on. One was when I was talking about my brother-in-law who died mm-hmm. and I said, oh, I, ha- I lost my brother-in-law and it was a tragedy and you said you didn't lose him. It's not like you went to the grocery store with Peter and he...
2: You couldn't find you him. You couldn't find him. Yeah. So
1: be, be precise. And then I was talking about a conflict with someone or a perceived conflict and I said, oh, I think that she was irritated with me. And you were like, she can be irritated, but you, need, you can't say that she was irritated with you. Right. And those are, it's so subtle, but it's so, it's really stuck with me in terms of how I describe my experience.
2: Yeah, beautiful.
1: Why is it so important to you that people are precise with what they
2: say? It's only important to me in as much as I care about people and helping people be powerful. Like, people are very loose with their language, right? So take something as simple as meeting a friend for a coffee. Someone might say, I'll meet you there at 2 o'clock, and they get there at 5 past 2 now, it's not a life-threatening situation, but that is a demonstration of where they don't have a relationship with their own word. So if they can do it in one place, then they're going to do it everywhere. So why is that significant? Well, because that person has dreams and aspirations. So come New Year's Day, they're like, oh, I want to get in shape. Well, those words are going to have the same lack of value as I'll meet you at 2 o'clock. So you're either in my world having a an intimate relationship with your language everywhere or you're not mm-hmm. right now that doesn't that's not to say that things don't come up I mean, I make reservations at restaurants that I can't keep, but I'll always call them to 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 let them know to to update quote unquote whatever I said and the number of times that I get like a really heartfelt thank you because you can tell that they don't normally get that mm-hmm. like people just like forget about it. Um, So, you know, without getting too poetic, I I recognize that language is like the wardrobe for the soul. So our nature, as far as I'm concerned, is just boundless. But our words create structure. So if I say I am something, and certainly when we get into the subconscious, if somebody's saying at a deep level, I'm not good enough, Mm -hmm. which is very human and it's very common, then that dictates what's available to them in the way they think, feel, act, and consequently the results they get. Mm -hmm it's not an accurate statement, but it's still very prevalent. So then you start to see the pot- the potency of words. So that's why I get really specific with words, because who we are ultimately is a walking conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. yeah.
1: And I think it's really important for women in particular, just because we have changed the way that we speak to not necessarily fit in, but in business, there's a lot of let's add a question to that. Or I had just preamble. I had an idea or I just wanted to say, or I think the more, and and there's so much self-effacing language. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more that people start to, again, get more precise, like, do you really believe that about yourself? Why are you saying that? Like, it's not charming. It's, you know, that, that has to stop, I think, yeah. for, for women in particular.
2: I couldn't agree more. And that's why I use the word powerful, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's powerless when you, when you use language that is self-protective or it's justifying or rationalizing in some way. Uh, and it's so prevalent. I mean, I, I'm so sensitive because it's what I do. I mean, I think my, my sort of superpower is listening. Mm-hmm. So when somebody comes to speak with me, whether it's you know professionally or otherwise, I can just hear where they're already trapped because they're using language to in some way justify, defend, protect, survive. And it's superhuman. I mean, and I don't mean that in the good way, but it's like very human. But it's denying, ironically, our superhuman capacities, right, which is we're, we're, we're powerful beyond measure. But if you use language that is demeaning, or in some way defacing, or limiting, then, then it's you know, using a metaphor, it's like taking water and putting it into um, a bottle, right? The water is going to be dictated by the shape of the bottle. But if you take the water and then put it into a vase, the water is now going to take on the shape of the vase. And then you put water in a bathtub and it's going to be the size of a bathtub. So likewise, for me, our soul is like it's it's unbound. It's it's limitless. But we will use words like the container for the water to to limit ourselves. And for me, I'm all about freedom and opening up that potential for people to really thrive and, and feel fully alive, if you're into that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I think is so interesting about your work is you have an incredible ability to understand whether the wounded child inside, I mm-hmm. guess. And that was, again, my experience, and not to get too personal, but Peter, when you see him, has you fill out a sort of brief intake form, and you write about the types of therapy that you've Um, experience. And I was like, oh, this is funny. And I always thought this was funny, but that as a child, my parents being a child of the eighties and being incredibly obsessed with, is there something wrong with our children, which I think was like part of the culture then, Mm -hmm. were convinced that I was a kleptomaniac, which is, I'm pathologically honest. So it's actually funny now, but I wrote it down, and you were like, oh, I know exactly... I mean, within 15 minutes, you were like, I know who you are. You're that little girl who's terrified of getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. And that was like... How, did you, how do you say it? Like, the prison without a door that I put myself in, that I opt... That's my worldview. Yeah. How... Like, how many types of... And it's true. I, that is completely how I operate, out of fear of getting in trouble. Yeah. So I put my... I judge myself before yeah. anyone can judge me.
2: Yeah.
1: How many little children archetypes are there like how does it manifest Mm -hmm. it's a great
2: question i'm actually i'm coming up with the answer (laughs) in my book (laughs) um yeah so at least in my system that i've created which i will be revealing here shortly and that's going to be the main tenet of my book there's eight different worlds that i create or not that i create but i've like you know discovered, shall we say, that are very inherent as part of being human. So one of them that you're speaking to with regards to yourself is really that very fundamental fear of a human being that we're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, how many times have you heard either from your parents or your friend's parents, like, oh, that was bad, don't do that. And so there's an implicit suggestion that it's, or beyond a suggestion, that you're doing something wrong. And so now, Again, without getting too poetic, as human beings, we just want to be loved and accepted. Why? Because that speaks to our union, like the sense of oneness. So any feeling of fragmentation or separation flies in the face of what we actually feel inherently, which is a a belonging. So... Therefore, if we sense that we could do something wrong because we're committed to belonging and being loved, we're going to do everything we can to avoid doing something wrong. Yeah. But that whole process is exhausting. And in my world, there is no such as a thing as wrong. It's just what you do. Like, you know, take cocaine. It's not wrong. It's cocaine. But it's going to have its effects, right? Like drinking alcohol, not something that I suggest. But, you know, it's not wrong. It's going to have its impact, right? And so over time, depending on your constitution, you may, like, tolerate it for a while or you may get some kind of, you know, disease so you just start to deal with physics so for me these worlds are very they're they're very subtle they're very ingrained they're part of our DNA we've inherited them from you know thousands of years of human survival and so they're not wrong but they're so limiting like not feeling loved not feeling enough not feeling safe which is a really big one for women in particular the sense of security and as far as I can see, they play a role in every human being I've ever met. Some are more predominant. You know, for a man, not feeling safe may not be so prevalent, but not feeling good enough is very strong for a man because there's a lot of emphasis on performance for the male archetype. So um, that's really what I'm, I'm doing is helping people see these worlds, see them for what they are, which is linguistic constructs, to go back to your question about language, like where does I'm not good enough exist? It exists in words. And the words are then the container within which we live. So if you feel you're not good enough, depending on how you respond to that, either you become a perfectionist to compensate, or, you know, perhaps you become someone who's derelict or on the streets because you bought right into it. But either way, you're being defined by something that's not true. (laughs) Right. So that's why I love what I get to do because it's completely um, reconciling these statements that got formed in childhood uh, with with all the evidence in the world. You know, I'm not making anyone wrong for even taking on these like monikers, but they're, they're fundamentally not true. And that's where true freedom exists by revealing them, seeing them for what they are. As I said, they're just words. And recognizing the impact that it has on people's lives, which is just immense. I mean, I just was working with a client now who, he came from Colombia when he was five years old. His parents had gone ahead of him. And his wife actually asked me to work with him because he had, by his own admission, some real anger issues. And um, it was being expressed in all, all sorts of arenas of his life, certainly in his marriage with his wife. It was di- it being displayed in the workplace and the way that he treated his, his employees. And he's actually a real teddy bear. I mean, the guy's got a huge heart. Here. But when we went through the process of how that got formed, he recognized that he was brought up Uh, in Colombia, in a very loving sort of community-driven environment, then thrown into America in a very wealthy New Jersey um, suburb. And he just didn't fit in. He was picked on at school. And so he developed the belief that he needs to protect himself. And so you do that for like 20, 30 years, it becomes pretty ingrained. And so for him to actually get that whole thing reversed and dissolved, I mean, I got a text from his wife that moved me to tears about how she witnessed a miracle from her her own husband that was so mundane Mm -hmm. that he spilt his coffee on the top of the car because he has a tendency to put his coffee on top of the car and... and, put all his stuff in there, forget about it, like many people do. And she said, had that happened before, he would have literally taken the mug and thrown it against the wall and then just been pissed for the rest of the day. And instead, he just laughed, and they went about their day.
1: And how, and like that level of detachment from that pattern, is Mm -hmm. that just born out of awareness of the pattern like for me it's been helpful to know that that's where I sit that's my little girl which is true and resonant and I know that yeah and then before I react or start using language to be like oh look I'm in trouble like I just stop myself yeah is that is that the same process for someone like that
2: yeah it's I mean that's why awareness to me is the first key Mm -hmm. you can't you know and this is why I have so much compassion for humans because people will judge like I mean it's just again it's just an inherent part of being human where there's judgment But if you walked every step of that person's life that you're judging, you would be doing exactly the same thing based on their conditioning. So the judgment is completely futile. So for me, it just depends on somebody's capacity to understand, their their diligence and their discipline to want to make change, the degree to which it really resonates, um, the willingness to see how much it's really affecting their life in a negative way. There's many components that go to the degree to which that change is like instant or it's progressive. But, I mean, for me, again, I'm, I'm biased because I do the work for people, but I feel like it's pretty instant.
1: <laughs> and how can people sort of do it on their own? Like, are there – how can you bring consciousness awareness to sort of crack your code or, like, to understand your conditioning? Or do you need someone to do it with um, you?
2: I mean, you can't be held accountable for that which you're oblivious to, right? So these are blind spots. So I think now to answer your question – I I think you need some form of reflection. I think that's the nature of life, again, without getting too esoteric, that as human beings, we relate. We relate, right? That's, That's how we have an experience. Like, you only experience something because there's two. There's you over there. There's me here. Or I'm lying in bed, and it's hot here, and I move my leg, and now it's cold. So it's only through relativity that we can have experience. So I think... You know unless somebody's super super self aware and they sit in meditation and really reflect on some of their behaviors which takes a lot of discipline, I think it's through relationship, having friends having counsel having loved ones that really can you know in a very compassionate way point out behaviors and then the willingness to listen and take that on mm-hmm. but I think it's like anything it's an art form i mean I feel super blessed that I can see the things I can see i mean i you know it's i I don't I don't know anybody who necessarily does the same form of work that I do. I mean, usually people are, with the best intentions trying to help you with your problem, right? Someone walks in with anxiety or, you know, I've got a a professional baseball player right now who's been dealing with some apprehension and fear and tension that shows up in the body. And, you know, then the well-intended therapist or sports psychologist is trying to help you with that problem. But that to me is only confirming the fact that you think you've got one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so now you know now you're just trying to manage symptoms whereas I'd like to get to why the hell do you think you know why do you even feel anxious in the first place Mm -hmm. and that's going to get down to one of these archetypes that we were talking about before that you're living in a world where you fundamentally don't feel safe and you're trying to survive Mm
1: -hmm. isn't that true of all archetypes isn't that sort of one of the fundamental truths of being human
2: yeah that that would be the overarching theme in every of the every one of these archetypes is survival it, it, and that's why I'm saying it's so deep in our DNA. Like, you, I'm not going to you know, begrudge somebody who is lying subtly in an office environment because they're concerned about their position in the workplace and keeping their income to provide for their family. But it's still powerless. Mm-hmm. It's still inaccurate. And I would assert that if they told the truth, it may lead to whatever. Maybe they get fired. They get whatever it is. But if they tell their truth, they would actually then um, attract a circumstance that would be much more in harmony with their true nature.
1: So that going to sort of this idea that like life will take care of you as you clear the hurdles mm-hmm. in a way, or yeah, like what's the thinking there?
2: Well, again, it goes back to the whole feeling of, Safety and as though we're victims of life, like the big bad world out there, right? I mean, how many kids weren't told that don't talk to strangers? You know, what is that? What is the subtext of that message? You know, it's dangerous out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm not sort of being naive. Like there, there's you know, there's a certain degree of crime and violence and hostility that really exists. But I'd assert that even that is a byproduct of these archetypes where people are trying to control, trying to have a sense of power because they're living in fear. So I may be an idealist, but what I'm really committed to is is shifting that, like literally transcending all of these fear-based paradigms that people live in that generate even the need to survive or the need to dominate or control that exists out there. Because underneath it, you know, there really is just love.
0: We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Peter Krohn in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners.
1: Like so many women out there, I have a whole other job to get to that starts the second I clock out at the office. In my case, this typically means chasing after my two young boys while attempting dinner and clean up and bath time, and maybe a last minute trip down the hill to the grocery store because we're out of milk. Anything involving my kids requires a shoe that can keep up. The fresh foam cruise sneakers from New Balance do just that, thanks to the easiest slip on and off design. To keep my sanity, I try to hit up a Tracy Anderson cardio class between my two jobs a few times a week, and that's where the sneakers' breathable knit body and super plush foam sole come in handy. The fact that New Balance shoes are aesthetically pleasing doesn't hurt either, especially when I put the sneakers on Saturday morning and don't take them off again until Sunday night. There are six great colors to pick from, like a pretty blush pink, dusty blue, and sleek black. You can get your pair at newbalance.com. Use code GOOP at checkout to receive free shipping through September 30th. Like most people I know, I routinely get into a cooking rut. I have a few standbys memorized so I can supermarket sweep in under 10 minutes on my way home from work. That is when I actually have time to stop and shop, as I'm usually rushing to see my boys before they go to bed. But it gets a little tedious over time, and my 5-year-old is starting to call me out for being a boring cook. It goes something like this. Turkey tacos again. I recently heard about Gobble and was really excited to try it. For one, their meals, which are all pre-cut and prepared in advance, are designed to cook in under 15 minutes and can all be made in one pan, which is great for those of us who don't find it relaxing to do a sink load of dishes every night. And I can tell that's a lot of people because whenever we do a one pan cooking story on goop, it does gangbusters. The gobble meals I tried were delicious, with complex and interesting marinades and spice packs that truly made it all feel home-cooked, even though it came together so incredibly fast. We tried a Burmese shredded chicken concoction served with coconut rice and salad, and if that's on the weekly menu, there are tons of delicious options. Get that. It was delicious and packed with turmeric, which I'm always trying to eat more of every week. Max, who typically gravitates towards things like macaroni and cheese and hot dogs, was super into it. The best part? Gobble is offering Goop listeners a special deal. Get $50 off your first box from Gobble. Go to gobble.com slash goop and get $50 off your first box. That's gobble.com slash goop.
0: Okay, let's get back to our chat with Peter Krohn.
1: going back to that person who's scared of losing their job Mm -hmm. but is acting from a place of not being in power Mm -hmm. we attach so much value to like that job right but but in reality like it's all probably going to be fine if it's not this job it's another job
2: Uh, it's one of my I write in quotes it's going to be the format of my book and one that comes to mind in relationship to that as I say if it's not life-threatening it's just ego-threatening
1: can you unpack that
2: yeah, I mean, so literally, like with clients that I've worked with for a while, they know that I, in, you know, inject a lot of humor with my work because at the end of the day, everyone takes all of this way too seriously, first of all. <laughs> so, you know, if somebody's worked with me for a while and they call and they've had whatever is the, you know, the, the flavor de jour in their life of problems, you know, I'll listen very carefully because I care. And then I'll ask them, does your situation require an ambulance? <laughs> 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 At which point they know who they're talking to and they're like, damn it. <laughs> you know? So, no, it's so it's unpacking it is like, if it's life threatening, then by all means call 911. But most people's systemic response to circumstance is as though it's life threatening when it's not. And that's the ego threatening mm-hmm. that so and so said this, or God forbid, like we were talking about earlier with social media, that someone didn't like your post. I mean, you're not going to be rushed to the ER. You know, but your ego feels like it. And so that's the part, that's the child, that's the fear-based survival mechanism of a human being that I'm helping people to hold, to love. Uh, Ultimately, educating people to become their own best parent. And that's no, you know, slight on any parents out there that maybe didn't do a great job. I mean, shit, there's so much pressure that parents are under. I tip my cap to every mother and father because... It's it's a really an unthankful task, and um, the the fact that we even call people mum and dad by itself I, by its, by by token of those labels to me is it's such an injustice because who can live up to the archetypes of mum and dad you know it's. It's Diane and Brian doing the freaking best they can, you know? And if you knew their parents, you're like, damn, they're doing pretty well, you know? So um, so I don't know if that really unpacks it enough, but it's really, you know, if it's not life-threatening, then it's purely something that is a reaction based on your ego. And I'm not using ego in the way that a lot of people do, like, oh, he's got a big ego, but like you're in a child, the part of you that hasn't recognized that you're freaking awesome, you're powerful, you're free, uh, and you're not wanting for anything.
1: So, how do you, in those moments of crisis, when you confirm that they do not, in fact, need a medic, what, like, how do you walk people back? Is it just making them reckon with that inner child?
2: Yeah, it's recognizing whatever the circumstance. So, for example, using this hypothetical—I'd rather use, you know, actual—but let's use the hypothetical: the person in the office who's concerned for their livelihood and their position in the in the company. There's going to be a feeling of of loss of value. Like, if somebody recognized their true value, they wouldn't have that, co- that conversation, they wouldn't have that narrative. And survival, right? Like, and also a sense of pressure, if in this case they're providing for a family. So it's still all in the world of survival. So it's, it's by recognizing what is the external symptom that someone's experiencing psychologically as their problem. And then I will reverse engineer that and take it back to, okay, what, what world does that exist in? Because that's where the lie is. Versus coming up with a strategy. I mean, I'm pretty smart. I have good solutions, but I'd much rather get to what's the the crux of your emotional reaction. If we negate that, then you don't. You no longer have that, and you're at peace. Mm -hmm. You know, these are these are the products I bring people. Is like freedom, peace, like vitality, love. Right. Not solutions to your problems, because that's only sustaining the belief, as I said earlier, that you think you've got some.
1: Right, or that you can control things that you simply cannot yeah. control.
2: Yeah, and that's why trust is another huge component of my work. And I'm not saying that's easy, but like, you know, tongue-in-cheek, I'll say I'm a trust fund baby. Not because I was left a penny, but because I trust in the universe.
1: Mm-hmm. I believe in that. I think it's also really powerful when you think about this, you've never met my husband, but you were quick to be to understand who his inner child was and to, to understand our Also, very common dynamic, which is I get frustrated. I know how amazing he is. Mm -hmm. He is amazing at work, Mm -hmm. not always amazing at taking care of the house or scooping the cat box or (laughs) doing the punch list of things that I want him to do every weekend. And essentially, you were like, well, he's inner child. He operates from a place of feeling inadequate. And you operate from a place of feeling wrong. And so you sit there and judgment and make him wrong Mm -hmm. and he's his inner child says i know i'm inadequate right like so that confirmation of what he sees yeah we were just creating this vicious cycle of judgment and of course meanwhile like i don't see him as inadequate i see him as amazing yeah so it's also like helps i think when other people are aware of what your inner child may be they can help to crack it or like Sure. destroy the veneer that really shifted something for us yeah even just talking about it yeah Cause I was like I'm not buying your mythology right so stop it
2: yeah stop being awesome
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. But
2: equally for you to be responsible, which obviously you were, and the fact that you were putting subtle demands on him, right? There's a judgment energy in the way that you were looking at what he was or wasn't doing. And so for the folks subtle, at home… glaring. Yeah. <laughs> Punch in the face. Um, I, I think, you know, for people at home, like if there's one thing I really appeal to them, it's to recognize where in your life are the people that you genuinely love, but actually you're making them wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you really get that, I mean, when I got that, I just felt like such a bagger, you know what, because it's not who I want to be for people. Like, I don't want to make them wrong, and it's, a, it's probably a subject for another time, but it's also, it's got nothing to do with love. Mm-hmm. People don't love the people that are in their life. They love who they think they should be. Mm-hmm. That's not them. That's your own manufactured uh, interpretation of who they could be should be or you'd like them to be that's still you mm-hmm. so actually why you know one of my favorite topics is relationships and helping people really to find intimacy not like most people understand it as physically but truly connecting with somebody which is learning how to listen that what they say and what they do is them versus filtering it through your lens of what they should do or should say Mm-hmm. that's you, and that's why most relationships don't work, because people don't listen to each other. They certainly don't honor who the other human being is. Mm-hmm. But that's the greatest gift you can give anyone, is to allow them to be who they are. And simultaneously, you can obviously be a stand for them becoming a better version of themselves. But, but I think there's going to be so much that people could just get out of that one distinction of recognizing just, just be responsible for where you're making people wrong in your life, that actually you're pretending that you love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and start actually loving them, and start making them wrong, and you you'll be amazed at how they'll show up.
1: Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, and it is an energetic thing. I think even it's, I think we don't give enough credence to the way that how we hold ourselves, or even the way that we're silent, or just the power of that mm-hmm. within. I mean, kids are incredibly attuned to that. Yeah, but I think that we we're obviously aware of it on some subconscious level, but that we don't actually acknowledge it. And so we just sit there and just dagger from the heart and anger Mm -hmm. without even using words, but it's just as damaging. Yeah,
2: it's tone. I mean, we're, again, it gets a little deep, but we're like vibrational beings. Everything's sound, which again, why language to me is so important because what is sound, it's vibration. Mm -hmm. And so you might not Hear what someone's saying, or they may not even say something, but you'll feel their resonance, you'll feel their vibration. I mean, how many people will say, oh, I got a bad vibe from that guy? They may never have even spoken to him. Mm-hmm. So, especially for kids, I mean, parents, again, through no fault of their own, they've got their own conditioning to deal with, but kids are super sensitive and they will feel the scathing look. You know that then makes them feel inadequate, and that's when you start to develop these worlds of like. Well, don't do anything wrong again. Could God forbid I get that look one more time? That that's scary, or I feel hurt, and and that you know if I can help dissolve that world, that that yeah. would be very uh, satisfying.
1: I think too, there's an, uh, there's like an addiction in our culture to feeling right. Like it's very soothing to feel right, whether right about how you perceive yourself. So again, looking for confirmation from the world that you are in fact inadequate or you are in fact wrong. Um, That's very soothing, I think, in a weird, perverse way. And then I think also you talk about don't make people wrong, but I think people just desperately want confirmation that they are right and Mm -hmm. the other person is wrong. Like, how do you? Break
2: that. Absolutely. Again, through awareness. And that to me is like really the ultimate MO of the ego. It's where it finds value because its value is not inherent. Whereas our value, like our true nature, is inherent. right? Mm -hmm. So the ego, one of the ways that it justifies its own existence is to be right. And the best way to do that, to your point, is make someone else wrong. So even though, yes, it may be soothing for a minute, I mean, it's it's really superficial. I mean, it's honestly childish. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I find that fascinating in all my years of work, like... Gosh, you know, that's really inspiring. You're right about your inadequacies. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so pumped for you. You know, it's like, you should take up public speaking. You know, I will prove to you that I'm a fuck up. You know, it's like, that's fantastic. You know, yeah, but it, it really is. It's just, it is ridiculous. I mean, and it's, it's petty. It's so petty. I mean, if people are willing to look themselves in the mirror and just recognize where are you being right, making someone else wrong and just, you know, get over it. Like, mm-hmm. because it's a survival mechanism, mm-hmm. protecting something, you know, protecting the fear of I'm not loved, I'm not valued, I'm not safe. And I've got all the evidence right here to show you.
1: Yeah. No, it is one of the biggest, biggest tricks, really. But I do think just catching yourself in those moments, I'm not perfect at it by any means, because I'm human. Well,
2: I'm going to make you wrong for that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but um but trying it yeah. has it helps considerably
2: it's massive i mean look at the world that we're in i mean the there's so many subjects that exist because of that dynamic right like the war between nations between religions the amount of pharmaceutical products people take the amount of alcohol people drink the amount of weed that people smoke to me are all byproducts of that inner suffering mm-hmm. where there's trying to make it myself right, trying to find value, making yeah. someone else wrong, which creates disease, a lack of satisfaction, a lack of peace. And then I seek some form of escape. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the world we live in, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just unnecessary. It's sad. It's really, you know, and as I said, I'm just committed to Bringing awareness to why it exists so that people can be responsible finally and go, wow, there's freaking nothing wrong with me. Nothing wrong with me. And let people be who they are.
1: Exactly. And just learning how to let go of control. Just understanding that you cannot, you can only control yourself, which is one of the hardest lessons for perfectionists and, and otherwise.
2: Yeah, but perfectionism, again, is built on the foundation of inadequacy, right? Which is a lie. Control is a byproduct of fear. I only need to c- try and control things if I'm scared. But if I recognize my fear is, again, based on a construct that is itself a lie and let go of that, then why do I need to control anything? Mm-hmm. Now I'm in harmony with what is. I am where I am. I'm not where I'm not. And I'm okay with that. But that's an evolved state of mind. Yeah. But I'm still committed to sharing it with people. And those who are ready to hear it will get it. Yeah. And those who aren't, they'll make me wrong. And that's fine.
1: <laughs> it's heady. It's hard to make it accessible, but it is. It's really powerful and incredibly helpful because it's small. Like it's just these small it paradigm is. shifts.
2: Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I used this quote with a client the other day. I said it's incredibly simple. It's just not easy.
0: Thanks so much for joining our conversation with Peter Krohn today. I really like Peter's message about relationships that the greatest gift you can give someone is to honor who they are, while also supporting them to become the best version of themselves. You can learn more about Peter's work at petercrone.com, and you can see him in a really interesting documentary called Heal. Now, it's Ask Me Anything time. Badayada asks... I feel uncomfortable as it might be too personal, but it's something a lot of divorce women think. Did you keep the last name Martin after divorce? And if not, how do you feel about not having the same last name as your kids? I genuinely only ask because one of my friends is currently going through this right now, and we never hear anyone talk about this topic. So anytime anyone says they never hear anyone talk about this topic, I want to talk about it. Um, I personally I legally did keep my last name Martin so my my legal name is Gwyneth Kate Paltrow Martin I think in my case because I'm known out in the world as my maiden name Gwyneth Paltrow I I had always kept that identity in a way but on you know things related to school I'm Martin Um, other children call me Mrs. Martin which is kind of hilarious and I don't really know. I think it has to be whatever's whatever's right for everybody. I think in some cases, I think women really want to reclaim their old name, and that's great. And in some cases, people want to keep their married name even though they're no longer married. And if that works for them, that's fine too. I don't think that there are any rules about it, and I think it's personal. And your friend might want to ask her children what, what they feel about it and maybe that will help her make her decision. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.